Thank you, God. Lord, as we open up your word tonight, would you be as present now as you've been in our worship? Lord, you deserve so much more than we could possibly offer. You have been such a better father than we could possibly merit. God, when I see the type of father you are, I wish I could be like you. Help me tonight. Help me be the pastor you want me to be. Help me to be the man you want me to be. Help me to be the husband you want me to be. Help me to be the father you want me to be. Lord, let me speak your word tonight with power and wisdom. We all need you. We need your fatherly touch. Would you speak to our hearts tonight as we approach the very sound of your voice in your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. Well, happy Father's Day, everyone. Uh... This was not intentional, it was not planned on my part, but it's kind of cool. I feel like God does stuff like this all the time. Um, You know, the world would see it as coincidence, but I think it's pretty special that on Father's Day I get to preach about the birth of Isaac. Abraham's waited a long time for this. We get to see it tonight. That's poor man and woman, Abraham and Sarah, who have waited for the promise all this time. Sarah's life, defined by her barrenness, definitive on her. Let's see how the Lord responds. Tonight we'll go through all of Genesis 21. I'm going to focus more on the first half than the second, this birth story. But I'm trying to get through the whole chapter. I titled tonight, Father of Two Nations, because we're going to see two things. Primarily in this father story. And for each moment that feels like a triumph, there's a moment that feels like a heartbreak. Because not only is it the birth of Isaac, it's also the casting out of Ishmael. They're back to back. And I was struck by that tonight. I was struck by the nature of fatherhood in that parallel. The joy and and the power and the beauty of the promise with the birth of Isaac and the brokenness and the sadness and the almost feels like betrayal of the casting out of Ishmael. And yet Abraham is the father of both these boys. And of course we're going to see that there's a greater father involved, right? Obviously. That doesn't, I don't think that diminishes Ishmael's heartbreak. I don't think it diminishes Abraham's heartbreak, which is interesting. But the Lord's at work, and we'll see it tonight as we go through Genesis 21. So, let's do that. 
Genesis 21 opens. If you remember where we were last week in Genesis 20, remember Abraham had, uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah at this point, had been taken uh, by Abimelech, who's the king of Gerar. And there was the very similar to chapter 12, this process of, of Abimelech having a dream and getting spoken to by the Lord and told to give Sarah back. And he gives Sarah back and Abraham, he... Um, receives his wife along with all these this money that's given to be a vindication for Sarah. And we talked about the main point of that passage is what? That Isaac is not, he's not illegitimate, right? It's, the point is that Abimelech and Sarah never had intercourse because otherwise Isaac could be someone else's. It could be not Abraham's, but the Lord was at work. The Lord was at work. He said in the dream, I did not let you sin. I did not let you approach her. It was at my hand that I kept you from sinning against me. That's what the Lord says to this foreign king, Abimelech. We'll see him show up in the second half of this chapter again, but that's where we left off. So we know that as the story is coming uh, into fruition, that this child is Abraham and Sarah's. It's not Sarah and Abimelech. This is Abraham and Sarah's child. That's what 20 is telling us. Chapter 20 is telling us. So verse 1. So the Lord took note of Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. That seems like such a small sentence for what we've been waiting for. But think about that. All the way back in Genesis chapter 11, when we were first introduced, we had the family of Terah and his boy, Abraham. And Abraham has this wife, Sarai, at the time her name was. Sarai. And she is defined by what? Her barrenness. Sarai did not bear any children for Abraham. And we've been waiting these 10, 11 chapters to get here to this promise, to this verse. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised to do for her. And her barrenness was removed. Her shame was removed. And the Lord opened her womb. And she did what was in that age the most noble, most honorific, most uh, fulfilling thing that a woman could do, which is she conceived, verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. We're at that year, Mark. Remember we saw in the Sodom and Gomorrah story in Genesis 18, the Lord said, I'll return to you in one year. And at that time, I will do what I promised for you. So it's been this year long period now and we're here to the birth. And Abraham, he's the man of faith. He, he's obedient. So what's he do? He immediately, he calls the name of his son who was, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him. He called him Yitzhak, laughing, the laughing one. Right? Remember, there's been all this laughter of unbelief. There's been all this doubt, all this uh, absurdity, really, when they hear this. Abraham's a hundred. Sarah's ninety. Like, who ever heard of something like this? It's impossible on human terms. It's laughable. 
So the Lord said, Name him laughing. So Abraham then did what? He circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. He followed Genesis 17 and the covenant to circumcise his son so that he would be part of the chosen people, part of the line. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Yitzhak Isaac was born to him. Now listen to the, how the laughter has changed. Verse 6, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Now that's not the absurdity laugh anymore, is it? That's not the unbelief laugh anymore. The laughter of absurdness has been changed into the laughter of joy. Sarah's heart is filled and overflowing. To the point she says, not only has God made laughter for me, which is a a pun, right? Made laughter. She's talking about Isaac. His name is laughing. Made laughter for me and the laughing of joy. It's a double entendre. But not only that, not only is she now filled with joy, but everyone who is with her is going to laugh with her. It's going to be overjoyed. They're going to rejoice that her shame's been taken away, that she has been fulfilled in purpose. And she said, Who could have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. That's a rhetorical question. And at one level, the answer is supposed to be no one. It's like we've been talking about this whole time. It's, it's ridiculous. It's impossible. But the actual answer, there is an actual answer, and the person who could tell him that is God. God did tell him that. In fact, the only reason any of this happened is because the Lord promised it to Abraham and to Sarah. Without the promise, this never could have happened. The Lord did this for them. And so the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now, this is interesting and, and probably important. We, when we think of weaning, we think of babies being pretty young. The, the likelihood is that Isaac's probably three or four at this time. One, because sustenance is much harder to come by as a nomadic people and just in that day and age it's harder to come by children tended to nurse a lot longer um, to give them the sustenance they needed and not only that if a child were to make it to three or four years of age uh, it's pretty likely that they would live their life out but it was very common for young children prior to that point to die the survival rate's not like we have it today for children, right? There was a high in infant mortality rate because they lived harsh lives. They lived lives that were hard um, to survive. Certainly much harder than the comfort we live in uh, for us here in America in these days. So the fact that he is survived is really, that itself is part of the promise. 
He's been protected to this point. And so when Isaac gets weaned, like I said, he's probably three or four. And so Abraham's going to throw a giant feast because it looks like we got the all clear. Like he's going to be the heir. He's the one. He survived not just being, he didn't actually just get conceived, but he survived through this infant toddler stage. And now he's, he's a little kid. He's, he's going to make it. But there's still some dark on the horizon, isn't there? The story is still playing with the term laughter, right? That's Isaac's name. They're still toying with that term. Verse 9. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Now this is kind of an ambiguous verse because it just says they saw him laughing. They saw him laughing. The question is, what does that mean? You know, some interpreters take it to mean that it's just kind of playful. They were playing together innocuously. It does seem that there's a euphemistic piece here that's talking about him making fun of him, teasing him, whatever that might be. But Sarah sees that, right? You've got a teen boy and this little kid and he's mocking him, he's making fun of him. Maybe out on a playground like some punks did to Eli the other day when we were at the park the first time. Um, that, that's a reality. So they're, he's mocking him, he's teasing him. So what happens? She's incensed. Sarah is incensed. Whatever we thought could have been laid to rest between Sarah and Hagar in chapter 16, even if for a while there was peace, that peace is no more when she saw Ishmael making fun of her son. It, it fires up that maternal jealousy, right? That, that maternal uh, mama bear, if you will, right? The, the, that I'm not going to let anything happen to my child. So what she says is this. She says to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son, Isaac. She's like, I want her out of here. And it's interesting because you'll notice the name Ishmael is never used in the account. Not once. It's like she can't even bring herself to say his name. The son, the son of Hagar, the son of the maid. Drive her out. That's a strong term. Uh, oddly enough, it's one of the terms that the Pentateuch uses for what? For divorce. Cast her out. Send her away. It's a harsh term. And it says in verse 11 that the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. And so what we've got at play here is that now that Sarah's had her own child, uh, any pretense of Ishmael being hers, you know, bearing on her knees, that idea that we talked about in Genesis 16, that's gone. Ishmael is, means nothing to her at this point. Whereas Abraham, it's still his son. 
that term distress, that it distressed Abraham, it actually implies a, a serious rage on Abraham's part, which is interesting. That's the same term used occasionally when God is distressed and he, he kills people after that. He judges them he, with physical death. This is distressing to him. He's furious. In fact, the, it seems like the turn has happened with Abraham. Remember in 16, he seemed to be very passive in that story. Sarah said to do something, and he said, okay, I'll go into Hagar. It seems like you had this idea, I'll do it. And he's kind of passive. No, Abraham, what this is implying is that Abraham will is not going to do what she wants. And, and probably, uh, maybe they had a blow-up, and, and he was furious. He was not going to do what she said. And so what's the only thing that's going to get Abraham to change his mind? It's if God tells him to. And we're left at an odd spot here because what happens next is the Lord says to Abraham, Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her for through Isaac your descendants will be named. The point of that is that Isaac is the line, the line of promise. And Ishmael is not. So the Lord says, follow through with what Sarah has told you to do. And we miss this because sometimes we read Genesis 22 and we think of the weight of that and that is huge. I mean, the, 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 the binding of Isaac, that story is astronomically huge, what God asks of Abraham. But I think sometimes we forget that right before it, Abraham lost his other son. And right before that, Abraham lost his other son, Lot, the one he'd raised like his own and took with him like his own child. He lost one with Lot. They went their own ways. He lost one with Ishmael. He drives him out because the Lord tells him to. And then the Lord says, take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, and sacrifice him to me. It's compounded weight. I mean, think about the pain that Abraham is in. But God continues. He says, of the son of the maid, don't worry about him. I'm going to make him a nation also. Why? Because he's your descendant as well. Ishmael will be blessed. He will be blessed because he is of the family of Abraham. The Lord says, I'm not done with him. That's not what I'm telling you, Abraham. I'm not sending him out to die. But he's not the line. So, Abraham rose early in the morning and he took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. Where, when the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Now she's out in the wilderness. She's wandering until this. She's probably in a daze, right? She's out in the middle of the wilderness. She probably is despairing. 
and is just wandering till her water is used up, and they have no provision. And uh, what's interesting is Ishmael's a teenage boy at this point, and sometimes people make a lot about this. I don't particularly see why. Uh, that They seem to think Ishmael is acting like a much younger child. But if you're dehydrated and you have no water, I don't care what age you are, uh, you, death is upon you. And Hagar must be a little hardier than him, or, or maybe, who knows, maybe he was letting his mom have the water. Maybe he's that kind of kid. I don't know. But whatever the case, he is spent. And so she lays her boy under the bushes. He's probably dehydrated and dying. And it says she lays her boy under the bush, give him a little shade from the sun. And she went away and sat opposite him, about a bowshot away, it says, for she said, do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. Hagar goes away so she doesn't have to see the death of her son, probably far enough away so that she can't hear his cries, is the point. He's probably weak and feeble, and his voice is weak and small to cry out in agony. She goes far enough away that she doesn't have to listen to it and see his death. This is interesting. Who did we just see lifting up their voice and weeping? We saw Hagar doing it. We see nothing about Ishmael, what he's doing at this moment. The reason I say he cries out is because the Lord hears him. Verse 17, God heard not Hagar. God heard the lad crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Now, remember I told you the name Ishmael is not used in the account once. But names are prophetic. I've told you that, especially in the Old Testament. Remember what I told you Ishmael means? It means God hears. His name's alluded to here. Why? Because God heard the boy. His name came to pass. And when he's at his lowest, he's about at death's door. God heard the boy. So the Lord says to Hagar, Arise, lift up the lad and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. So God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water, something she must have just missed. It was there, and the Lord revealed it to her. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt, from her people. She's an Egyptian. He's already fulfilling the promise that God had told him. Remember, he said he would be a wild ass of a man, right? Remember that? 
and that he would live in the wilderness opposite all his brothers and he would he would buck off the slavery that was upon him remember he's fulfilling the promise out in the wilderness an archer a hunter with no one ruling over him he's broken the bonds he was under when he was under sarah There's one more piece to this story. It's a separate story, and I want to get to it. But before I do that, I kind of wanted to just sit here for a minute with this. Especially with Father's Day. You know, I I thought about this story a lot uh, this week. And especially today as I was thinking about preaching it. Um, I, I think Abraham's a really good dad. I do. He loves his boys. And he is the father of these two great nations. What will become the Jewish people through Isaac. What will become the Arab people through Ishmael. But also, separate from that. That is true. That's the story we're seeing in scripture. But I also couldn't help but look at it and think about what a story it tells on Father's Day. About what we humans experience with earthly dads. And I'll be honest, I think Abraham's attitude towards Ishmael is probably a lot better, a lot more loving, a lot more caring than the attitude that dads who cast off their kids usually have. I thought it was a moment for us to sit and reflect what story we see ourselves in. And maybe both to some extent. I don't know where you're at. But there's a place for anyone with any kind of father to see themselves in this. And I think you guys all know my heart is for the outcasts, so that's how I think. So I'm particularly interested in the story of Ishmael. But there are those of us who've had Great fathers, fathers who waited on a promise for them, fathers who loved them and cherished them and built them up to be the next of, of the line, who cherished them, who doted on them, who really built them up to be the man that God intended for them. There's many of us who have... A story like Ishmael. Cast out. Betrayed. Sent off. Uncared for. Grow up without a dad. Ishmael didn't have his father in his life. From the time he was a teenager. Went out in the wilderness and lived life alone. And that story, I mean... I couldn't even have a guess, but I'd say a hundred to one that people have Ishmael's story to Isaac's on dads. I mean, what one of the greatest epidemics we've ever had. I, but Sorry, I know we're in an actual pandemic. I, I'm using that word metaphorically. One of the greatest epidemics we've ever had in human history is fatherlessness. The ache of 
father pain is a unique pain for humanity. It just is. And it's an epidemic. Countless, countless, countless people, men, women, children, have that story in their past. Uh, And the reality is, it's true. I'm not denying that you have that pain with mothers. There are many people who have that. But it's, it's just astronomically greater with with fathers it, it, it mothers don't tend to do that as much as fathers do it's just the way things are and uh, I look at Ishmael's story and you get to see behind the scenes because in our own lives we don't see always that God's at work we don't get to hear his words. We don't get to see what he's at work doing. But with Ishmael, we know that there's a father left for him. Because it wasn't Abraham that heard his voice in the wilderness. When he was at death's door crying out. No, it was God. It was Elroy. Like Hagar said, the God who sees me. It was Yishmael. God hears. It was that God who was there when Ishmael was about to die. And I think whatever story, whatever story you find yourself in, whatever story we any one of us might find ourselves in of the of these two the backbone of it is god was at work being a father without the promise to abraham isaac would have been nothing he never would have come to be without god at work ishmael would have died under that bush alone and forsaken without even his mother to see his death. Alone, miserable, outcast from his family, and dying of thirst. But God was at work in both. God was a father to the chosen, and he was a father to the outcast. So, As you reflect on your own father tonight, and you think about which one of those you see yourselves in, or or some weird amalgam of the two, perhaps, know that God's at work. He was at work, and he's still at work, being a father. Like I said in my prayer earlier, he is the one from whom every father, from whom every family draws its name. I think it's in James where it said every family draws its its name from the father above he's the one who's at work in all of these stories and so whether you have a great earthly father like Abraham in the Isaac story or maybe the sadness of Ishmael's story is where you find yourself No matter where you find yourself, God was there. He is there. And unlike the scriptures, 
There's probably a whole host of things that you haven't even had revealed to you that he did for your sake. There were probably bushes you've been laid under you didn't even know about. And he heard you. And he saved you. Without so much as a word to you. Without so much as a revelation of the fact that he was doing it. And he gave you that water. Gave you that drink. Pulled you out of the mire. Pulled you out from under the bush. And led you to the well. Saved your life. I think it would be cool if one day we get to see that stuff. I'm not going to say we get to know that. The Bible doesn't say. But I think it would be cool if we got to see some of these moments that the hand of God was at work that we didn't even know about one day. There's another part to this story, but I don't know if I want to go on from here. This is poignant and, and important. The main point of the next story is just to tell you that Abraham lived in the land of the Philistines or what would become the land of the Philistines for a long time. They made a covenant. Abimelech, that that king from the last chapter, makes a covenant with Abraham that the well that Abraham dug, would, it would be known that that well was his. That it was Abraham's well. And, and what's important about that What's important about that story, uh, like I said, that, there's your synopsis. I'm not going to go through it, which I'll admit is hard for me because I've preached through every word of Genesis so far. But I'll let it go. <laughs> I'll try to. I'll probably, I'll probably be upset about it tonight. But I'll let it go for now. But the point of it is this. Not, just like Isaac fulfilled the promise, this well fulfills the promise. Why? It's the first piece of land that is Abraham's in the promised land. He's actually starting to take hold of the promise. What's kind of beautiful about the story is it's a very just normal story. Every moment of Abraham's life wasn't some crazy out there massive army adventure watching a city get blown to bits from heavenly fire. Like Every moment wasn't like that. There are some moments he's just like, Trading sheep with people. <laughs> Just kind of a fun pastoral story. He, he offers seven lambs and then Abimelech takes him up on this covenant that they do good to each other. And, and all of a sudden, things look like they're going great. They look like they're going wonderful. Abraham sees that God's promises are coming true even now. He has his first piece of land in Canaan. This well, Beersheba, it's his. 
The well of swearing, because they swore a covenant there. The well of seven is another translation. Why? Because he gave seven sheep to the Molech. And it's his well now. He owns it. It's his family's. He's got some land. The land promise is coming true. He's got his kid. The seed promise is coming true. Hey, it looks like even the blessing's coming true. Abimelech is good to Abraham, and he's been blessed because of Abraham. Abimelech even says to him in the beginning of this story, I've seen that God is with you in everything you do. <coughs> even foreign pagan kings can see that Abraham is a blessing. The promises are coming true. Everything's coming up roses. It's great. What we're going to see next. The hardest ask of Abraham's life. Take your son and slay him on the altar for me. Everything looks like it's going great. And then Abraham gets asked that. How's that for a father's heart? Slay your son. I just sent the one off already. You've got one left. He's a, a child. Slay that one. That's where we are in Genesis. This is some point, some ways the high point of the whole book. And in some ways, the high point of the whole Old Testament, because we know what that story symbolizes. We know it. We can see it. The thing that's beautiful to me, in one sense, about the story of the binding of Isaac, we'll talk about two weeks from now, is this. It's that in the New Testament... Our sole focus is, is almost exclusively, at least in the words, on Jesus. There's not much given perspective about what the Father's feeling. The binding tells us. The binding story for Abraham is, is letting us in on what's happening to the Father. We get perspective on God the Father's viewpoint by seeing the agony that Abraham's in. is a good father he's the greatest father my prayer for you is, is, is as you reflect on your life and particularly as you reflect on your relationship with your own father whether non-existent bad, good, anywhere in between my prayer is you will remember that he is the prime example of what fatherhood is. No earthly reality 
could explain what fatherhood is. Earthly fathers are merely shadows and sometimes awful uh, demonic shadows of what God is like as a father. We define fatherhood by what he is, by who he is, not by what we see in a human. The only measure of fatherhood is what God is like. I hope that will stay with you this week as you think about that. I'm going to give it over to Tyler to do some prayer, but before one thing before we do is um, next week uh, we're going to take a one week break on on Genesis next week. Um, I love this next story, so it's hard for me to stop here. Uh, but it's kind of special too because that will push uh, Genesis 22 out one more week, which I'll preach on Eli's birthday, which is both very, very, very sad uh, as I think about the reality of trying to sacrifice your own son and uh, really poignant to me to preach on my boy's birthday. Uh, But between that, this next week, um, I realize that God's been stirring in my heart something that I haven't done and theologically in my mind, how I believe, uh, should have done maybe a few years ago. Um, my kids need to get baptized uh, because they haven't and they're believers and believers should be baptized when they convert. That's the biblical method. Uh, So actually next week, uh, in light of that, I wanted to do just one week on my view on baptism in the Bible and and tell you why I think um, the biblical exactly what I just told you why I think the biblical model is that when you come to belief you should be baptized immediately that should be the moment of baptism uh, and we've changed that in the church we've we've kind of made up our own reality of what baptism is we're like hey it's the next step of obedience and hey you've been a Christian for 10 years probably should think about getting baptized that's not biblical uh, you should be baptized when you get saved so I'm going to try and explain that to you, why I view that that way through the scriptures. So that will be next week. Uh, And then my hope is um, we can have a special week sometime this summer uh, where we baptize my kids. And I'm really looking forward to it. Um, And I love them. And I think this will be really intimate and sweet for them in a moment. I hope they'll remember for the rest of their lives that this, this close family were the ones who were there. Uh, when they were baptized. Not 5,000. Just the family. <laughs> <laughs> or 5,000. I don't think 5,000 people are coming the next couple weeks. Uh, I'm going to pass it over to Tyler. 